Good evening, 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 evening. Okay, let's give everyone time to join. Also settle in also to get the audio sorted. Lovely, thank you for joining us on, especially on such a sunny, nice day as well. My name is Stanford. How about Cool, I think most people are here. Great, so my name is Stanford. I'm a medical doctor working in psychiatry. Previously worked also in uh, women's health as well, which is somewhat related to today's topic. Uh, also yoga teacher and uh, trainee for yoga therapy under Colin. Hi, my name's Colin. Um, I'm a yoga therapist. Um, I've been uh, working one-to-one -one with people for quite a while. Um, and today our subject is M, um, menopause. Could I, um, and what I'm hoping today is a, a couple of things. The first is to ask a number of questions to Stanford with regard to the medical understanding of menopause. Also maybe also some myth busting as well. So maybe to ask him some questions about this, but also um, for myself to hopefully articulate to you guys, um, the yoga and Ayurvedic background to menopause to give more of an understanding about what to do and how to approach um, menopause as well. So that's my hope for today. Um, so I just thought I'd share that. And my first question is okay to Stanford. Um, could you give me just a, a, just more of an understanding um, about menopause from a Western perspective? I'm keeping the question quite open because No problem. Um, it's fine. Uh, so uh, first of all, as always, we always encourage everyone to ask questions, interact, especially today's session. There may be things that you want to ask about for yourself or friends, for someone else that you know. Uh, so please go ahead. You can always put that into the chat. So uh, menopause in the Western medicine sense just means when uh, periods stop for people who menstruate or I, I think for this webinar's purposes, I'm just going to say woman or female. Um, so that happens because most of the time is when the ovaries no longer have any reserve for eggs for the uh, for the ovums to be mature and released. So basically, the reproductive cycle of uh, a woman's reproductive life has end uh, come towards the end, and that typically typically happens somewhere between forty five to fifty five years old. Um, obviously, everything's always arranged, and everything is always relative. Um, in UK compared to rest of the world, it's kind of halfway. Um, so UK's average age for women to go into menopause is around 51 years old. There's of course a lot, a lot of factors that affects the age that you go into this stage of life. Um, genetic is the main one, like say if you're a female uh, member of family uh, going to menopause earlier, then you're more likely to go in earlier as well and vice versa as well. Um, but I think as we have put into the promotional uh, materials, sometimes going into menopause as early as four, uh, 40 can be normal as well. Obviously, uh, if it's slightly earlier, so 40 or earlier, sometimes it can be a condition called premature ovarian failure. And that is the time when we just have to investigate and make sure there's nothing else causing it, that there's nothing pathological that either we can correct or we need to treat because something else is going on. Um, Colin, satisfied? From you, always. Thank you. Um, so can you tell me then what's the definition of menopause from your or Ayurvedic perspective? Okay. I, I like the, um, 
I like the word you use with regards to cycle. Um, I like that word a lot because menopause is a, a, a transitional phase. It's, it, it, it's, it's a transitional phase between two parts of life. And so life is broken into three parts. One is almost a, a young age. We've got a sort of this first part of life um, where there's a sort of accumulation going on. Then you've got a transition that occurs, a transitional phase from this young part of life um, into, and that transitional phase is called puberty, where there's a metabolic process is occurring. And then you've got a sort of a, a, a middle phase of life. And this middle phase of life, um, as this phase begins to come to an end, it's a transitional process and transitional phase from one place to another place. So the actual act of menopause is a transition and it's a transitional process and transitional phase. Now, it means that each stage of life almost in a way is governed by a different quality. The first being a cumulative quality, the second being a metabolic quality, and the third being almost a quality of, of sort of slight degeneration and movement into a different area. Um, and so what we're doing is we're finding ourselves in a situation where we're managing transition of a whole cycle or a whole phase. Now, if we jump backwards to the actual menstruation itself, is that it in itself is a process of transition as well. So what we have is we've got cycles within cycles which are occurring. And why the menstruation cycle becomes very important for this because in a way it's a smaller cycle of learning to expand and contract in a way that isn't linear and it's a process of transition from one point to another point within each cycle and so even though you've got sort of as you're mentioning it was, it was so interesting to hear that you know there's an end of this kind of process of eggs being moved it, there's an end to this kind of process that's happening and that overall process is a transition itself. I don't know if this is making sense. I'm trying to get across that there's a smaller transition of expansion and contraction which happens on a monthly basis and this means that we have to learn how to expand and contract with that and quite often we want it to be a linear process and it's often by thinking of things as a linear process, because we crave stability, that actually we put numbers of rules in place that actually create imbalances. And so the smaller rules we put in place within a menstrual cycle also affect the bigger rules we put in place with regard to this major transition that goes from one point to another point. So we start to get physiological effects. We start to get, um, energetic effects, we get psychological effects, we get emotional effects that go on within this. And these effects are different based on the constitution of what's happening within a person. Um, did that, I, I'm sorry, did I articulate that? No, beautifully. Um, what I love for you um, that you have mentioned is almost kind of mirrored in a lot of mythology that I've read in the past, like, you know, the triple goddess, the, the, the free phase of womanhood. Um, and that's just beautiful. And that's a really good way of articulating what, what, what is going on at that part of life or just in, in a woman's life in general. 
And I think you're very correct in saying sometimes the problem comes when we think about things very leniently. We think, oh, this is just how you go through things. Actually, um, in, in a woman's reproductive life, there are other occasions where almost mimic what, uh, what uh, menopause is as well. So obviously pre-pubertal is going to be one of them. Uh, so meaning if the girl hasn't gone through puberty yet, um, because ultimately what menopause is, is when the body is low in estrogen, but also progesterone as well, but mainly estrogen. And that's causing a lot of the symptoms that we're going to later, I'm sure. Um, so obviously before puberty, before the sexual characteristic comes along, uh, Oh, estrogen tend to be lower. But another important uh, phase will actually be postnatal. So straight after your pregnancy, literally all the hormones, what sometimes we're medically uh, described as crashing down, just because the placenta and the baby have left the, ba uh, left the body and uh, kind of all the hormones just need to be rebalanced and back to pre-pregnancy state. And so that's why a lot of the time, the first few days after pregnancy, what we've seen a lot of people, um, a lot of these postnatal mother has a lot of temperature problems. They have hot flushes, they get uh, very emotional as well. So a lot of these symptoms are actually quite in a lot of way is less of the issues since birth the um, girl hasn't quite gone through this hormonal change until puberty. So it, the, the stability is more maintained over that side. Um, but if you really integrate that into a, a woman's reproductive life, you can see that as Colin's saying, it's not quite as linear as we think. You just go through, uh, I'm gonna use the triple goddess uh, phrase, the maiden, the mother and the grown phase, but actually it is small cycles that made up and um, woven in all the way through. Um, so as I said, the main thing uh, about menopause is about hormones from a Western uh, medicine point of view. So oestrogen, because there's uh, no longer a lot of eggs coming out from the ovary. Progesterone, uh, once again, because uh, ovulation doesn't really happen. So again, both hormones come really, really low. And that typically causes the issues because oestrogen is a major um, simulatory hormones in um, both men and women, actually. So it causes things like earlier on uh, sexual characteristic changes in puberty, but also um, your vasodilation, so meaning your blood, uh, your blood flows, your um, cardiovascular health, your uh, muscle as well as your bone growth. Um, sometimes even your tissues and your skin get affected as well. So you can imagine how actually a lot of the symptoms that we see like hot flushes, like um, um, vascular skeletal changes, um, so both the blood, um, blood pressure and the heart rate changes and also the uh, bone density, muscle mass changes, they are both related as well. Also sometimes dryness, your skin, also down below around the vagina, it can get more dryness as well. It can affect sleep, it can affect uh, your libido. So these are parts of where it comes from. Now I'm intrigued because I have talked about this with Colin a little bit before where we mentioned actually every woman's menopause really can be really different and can be very unique to themselves. Can you just expand a little bit more why? Oh, was that a question to me? Yep. Oh, I thought you were going to do really, I thought you were going to talk. I was like, great. You mean I have to come in now? No, um, you have to speak now. I'm going to get some water. Perfect. <laughs> um, so what I've mentioned is, is um, each person has has these sort of three stages. This this first stage of, of accumulation. So we're young, we expand, we sort of go into a stage where we start to a metabolic stage, and then we go to a third stage of life. And the 
the menopause is this transitional phase, this transitional process from one phase to the second phase to the third phase. Now, it's all based on the unique constitution of an individual, the effect of what's going on. So according to both yoga and Ayurveda, the, each person has a unique constitution. So whether that be a vata-based constitution and combinations of that, a pitta-based or combinations of that, or a kappa-based or combinations of that, you'll find that actually what's happening is this gives rise to the different effects. Now a transition is vata, it's a movement. So what this means is we get a movement that then starts to go into the transitional phase, which is also a movement of things occurring. So it's, it's why we start to get different effects for different people. It's why we start to get, if we consider, let's say, a vata-type symptom. You, you mentioned this idea of dryness. You mentioned the idea of cold. You mentioned the idea of um, sort of movement or high stress. So what we get is the, this, these are the things that aggravate Vata. So if you're going through a transition, so I'm working with a lady at the moment who is going through a transition. She's going through this transition and she normally goes out. She's normally really active and she's like, do, 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 go, go, go. And suddenly she's got no energy. If she goes out, she collapses emotionally. So she's actually at a stage of life where what's going on is this is what's happening is and we break menopause into three different areas you've got peri which is the pre you know the, the first part of it you've got the menopause itself people's got post menopause so we break it into these three areas as well um, and what we're starting to see is that the effects become slightly different based on the constitution and so you've got the movement of vata i'm keeping repeating so that you guys at home can follow this because it's in my head, but I find it difficult to get what's in my head out onto the thing. It makes sense to me, but I don't know if it makes sense to you. So, um, so what we have is we, we've got this unique person in front of me who is, has a unique constitution, but also what's happening is that they've also got a unique lifestyle and they've also got a number of rules that they put in place as well. Like I'm a get up and go person. I eat this food, I do this. I, you know, I'm a mother, I look after my children. I, you know, there's a whole series of stuff, responsibilities and rules and various other bits and pieces that are actually put on this person very intensely by themselves. And because of the responsibilities that they also have. So we start to put all of these things into play with a person. And what we're starting to see is that we start to see that based on this transitional phase that they're in and their constitution, there becomes irregularities of effects. Like there's some people, and I spoke to someone earlier on today, who an absolutely wonderful person said to me, you know, I actually didn't notice the menopause at all. I just, one side to the other side. And that was it. But this person has got a very good Kappa constitution. So in fact, what's happening is that there are much fewer symptoms due to the actual natural constitution this person has. There's a lot more stability within the person. So when they go through this transitional phase, they can actually manage this phase very, very well indeed. And almost they kind of don't notice it. So they've got the stability, they've got the coolness within the system because they're cool and stable nature. And almost it's a natural antidote to the aggravation of the movement that they're going through. So what we start to get is we start to get uh, the 
fact that there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach to menopause or the symptoms that people are experiencing or how long things are going to last or when they're going to start and when they're going to end. So we have a Vata condition. So it's a it's, it's, it's a Vata situation rather than condition. It's a, it's a movement. It's a transitional phase. You're dealing with an individual and that individual has a unique makeup. They've got a unique lifestyle. They eat food in a unique way. They've got unique activities. They've got a unique belief system and set of rules. And suddenly they find themselves in a situation where they're looking for stability in a place that is actually a transitional place of instability. And this is why it's slightly different. Does that make any sense? Make a lot of sense. And I think it brings up a really good alternative perspective to what I used to learn about the uh, menopause or this phase or, uh, within a reproductive life. Because first of all, in the Western medicine, what I forgot to mention earlier on is a retrospective definition, which means it only, we only know that the woman has gone through menopause or has entered menopause 12 months after the last period, which means by the time you see a doctor and we say you're postmenopausal, you are literally a year after you have gone through the phase itself. Um, now, there are times that we can use um, treatments or managements um, to support the perimenopausal phase as well, because we really do recognize that a lot of uh, women in general do suffer from the symptoms like hot flushes or period irregularity and things like that as well, emotional um, um, turbulence a little bit more, lability. Um, however, typically we we will define it after the woman has entered that stage and then we do treatments. And also the treatment in the Western medicine is mostly hormonal based, which means, yes, it, it, it takes care of the problem at its root. Because as I said already, uh, from our point of view, it's because the oestrogen has kind of really, really depleted because of what happened in that time. So we replace oestrogen or something that's similar to oestrogen. However, it's not really in some way, um, how can I say that properly, um, most helpful because at one day you will have to stop the medication as well. So most recommendation and uh, most of the controversy actually back in the days about hormonal replacement therapy is if you use or you shouldn't uh, for a very, very long time. So some people that was in those studies or in those scandals is they would have been using um, this HRT for 10, 15, even 20 years, like well into their seventies. And obviously then it becomes a problem because that's not something um, that your body's supposed to go through and actually increases problems in a whole other way. So sometimes cancer, sometimes cardiovascular risk. So at the moment, I think the current guideline is usually um, you use HRT for about 10 years or up to the age of 60 or 65, and then you stop. Obviously these guidelines are constantly under review. So it might have changed by the time you revisit this webinar or by the time you've seen your doctor as well. Um, however, the problem is if there's an end date of this treatment, it will mean that your body will eventually have to go through the withdrawal of oestrogen again. So actually what we see a lot is um, once we stop the HRT, people will have to go through similar symptoms again, sometimes to a lesser degree, just because there's more time for the body to adjust. 
especially if you withdraw the treatment more gradually than sudden stopping, like cold, cold, cold turkey, uh, does tend to be slightly better. But in the long run, uh, any symptoms that you're going to actually go through will typically, you will have to visit them anyway. There's kind of no um, um, stopping it per se. So like Sue was asking, uh, does it delay menopausal symptoms? Yes. So yeah, basically you, you kind of trick the body into thinking you're not quite menopausal yet, even though you're still not ovulating. So when the ocean replacement is stopped or the receptor modulator is stopped, you still have to go through the process again. So that's what we see in a lot of study as well. So I think having compared that to what Colin said is really good because in, in some way, Colin, you mentioned how actually it's about coping with the change uh, or the fatter condition where, 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 where things and change are happening and we have to kind of allow the body and ease ourselves through that phase, through the transition, whilst the Western medicine can help us to delay it so we have more time to prepare, but not necessarily stop it or unless you really prepare yourself to go through the change again, um, once you stop the medication, it will come back. Um, uh, am I making sense? <laughs> I'm not sure. No, no, you're, you're, you're completely making sense. And, and I, I appreciate what you said. We, 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 we build out using an interconnected model. So the Panjamaya model from and the Taitiri Upanishad um, is a kind of interesting model to actually look at menopause through. Um, it, it, it's, it's one that it is quite interesting because when you start to look at the physical structure you've got this these physical metabolic changes and you've also got issues that occur with those changes and they're unique as I said to each constitution so you find that um, it, it, it's Vata that is doing the movement and this becomes key because if we understand that Vata is doing the movement and that someone has a Vata constitution you have to target Vata and I'll talk about how to do this with this situation a bit later, just to give some guidance and a bit sort of bit of understanding of possible practices or possible directions to work with with this. Um, but with water type symptoms, you, you've got coldness, you've got dry, um, you've got sort of high stress, fast paced lifestyle, you've got an, someone that is often out of rhythm within life as well. So they just, there's a kind of like a disconnect within life. They're a bit sort of like, Oh, well, did I leave that there? You know, you know, there's, there's sort of like a, there's an out of rhythm that's going on. And sometimes this can appear a little bit more during this or quite often quite a lot during this. Believe it or not, one of the symptoms of aggravated vata within menopause is hot flashes because the movement pushes into the fire, metabolic fire within the body. So actually it's a symptom of vata. Um, you, you mentioned vaginal dryness. Again, it's a, it's a symptom of vata. Um, insomnia, the inability to sleep, it's a symptom of vata. So again, these are symptoms that are given, but for us as yogis and yoga therapists is what we're doing is we start to understand, okay, this is the vata that's pushing in to do that. Then we can decide the practices that we give to someone based on their constitution to help them to deal with what's happening. Because it could be that it's, a vata process but it could be that they are having vata based symptoms and they could be something else we have to target the vata first of all always target vata first okay it's primary most important thing um so something like insomnia irritability um anxiety palpitations 
constipation. These things actually, they're all vata-based, but will appear during this sort of menopausal transitional process. Um, and then we can sort of move and we start to look at um, sort of a vata-pitta understanding of this. So with this more kind of pitta within the person, um, and pitta manages the digestion and it manages, you know, it's a kind of strong digestive thing and it manages the meta metabolism within the system as well. And it gives a balanced normal weight if everything's going the right way. And that's with the change in hormones. Now, it pitta guides the chemical reactions that occur within cells. And it also gives the heat that is appearing with the hot flushes after Vata has pushed into it. So what we're finding is that it's the, the transition is aggravated by Vata that actually fans the fire to increase Pitta, to give symptoms such as the hot flushes, to give an increase of inflammation, to give the swelling that occurs within the body, an expansion within the body, the increase of anger, the increase of um, intensity of emotion, the irritability and the short-temperedness. So in fact, we get knock-on effects that happen right the way through the system. And in Kappa, what we tend to do is that with a Vata Kappa situation going on, so the Vata being the transition, but the Kappa being the predominance within the constitution, we tend to find that what's happening is that there is, um, it's the Vata that pushes the Kappa more. So there becomes actually much more of a, a rise in body weight. There becomes much more lethargy, much more melancholy. Um, much more heaviness, dryness, coldness within the system. And the body is sluggish while the mind is still active because the vata is the active aspect, which we find within the mind. So for me, looking at it from a physical perspective, I'm starting to understand the constitution. I'm starting to look at the constitution. I'm also starting to look at the symptoms because it's the symptoms that tell you a lot about what's happening. And then what I'm starting to do is also understand the disturbances in what's happening in the pranamaya, in the sort of circulatory aspect of the system. So this is Vyana within the system. And I'm also looking at what's happening in the apana region. So this is the lower abdominal region. Um, and so if there is imbalances in Vyana, which is the circulatory aspect, imbalances in the apana region, you tend to get energies feeling off balance, you tend to get a feeling of heaviness in the abdomen, you tend to get fatigue, you get a lack of space and a feeling of a lack of space. And it almost means that there's with this heavy feeling, it feels that processes aren't completing. It's like they're starting, but they're not completing. There isn't a kind of completion of processing. Now, for me, the interesting stages are the stages, um, the steps from Manomaya to Vijnanamaya to Anandamaya. Um, the reason they're so interesting is that there's a disruption of a pattern. And a disruption of a pattern um, is a concept of change. And I want to define 
this situation just a little more because it's almost that this monthly cycle that is occurring in the middle phase is actually a hormonal imbalance of transition that's happening, but we keep it balanced in a very fine way. Then as we go through this transition, it actually the imbalance becomes imbalanced. And what that does is it starts to give a lot of pattern of disruption within the system. So normal routines, even though they're out of balance are not actually working. Do you see what I mean? So it's why I, I, I talked about this, this thing about at the beginning with regard to this idea of learning to expand and contract, because actually we have to expand and contract, but yet we want it to be very, very linear to keep very safe. And we actually crave stability within the regular imbalances that we've got. And so it means that the rules that we put into place when we're going through a transitional phase actually need to be questioned because their rules need to expand and contract. Like if I give an idea, I don't eat at six o'clock. Actually, that's a rule that's put in place. Maybe you do need to eat there. I don't go to bed at this time. I go to bed at this time. Maybe you do need to address that rule. Okay, it, it's, it, we put all of these things in place, but yet we can't expand and contract with what's happening through a transitional phase. So it, it means that for me, it's normal routines are not responding the right way, they're not working. There is also a sense of identity with the person starts to become unclear because they took a particular role in a particular way. It means that their identity isn't clear okay there's something changing there's a transition happening quite often it accompanies numbers of other changes that are going on in life as well so the person i'm working with at the moment who is going through this has a child a particular age 20 years old another child who is slightly younger and what's happening is there's children are leaving home there is a complete change in role and so you've got these multiple changes and transitions that are happening. And what it does is it impacts not just how the mind is operating, but how the belief system is operating. And so here there is a confusion with regard to who I am and also who I believe I am and the confidence of who I am. And so there starts to be quite a lot of issues with regard to what we believe who we trust, the confidence we have in ourselves, the role that we can seek in our life, how we hear things and how we express things. And so it almost there's a wanting, a desire deep down to stay with the original pattern of this sort of fertility pattern that we have. And to break away from that is quite a difficult thing. So on the Vijnana Maya level, we start to look at this, we start to look at how the person, what they believe in, how they engage themselves, because it's linked to the whole cycle of absolutely everything that's going on. And then the final aspect, Anandamaya, is that we are also looking at how relationships are subtly changing. So how their emotional feelings, how the relationships that they have, how they're processing feelings, how they're looking to process and deal with things in a very different way. And why this becomes very important 
is it becomes a link back to the menstrual cycle, which is one of the purposes of a menstrual cycle is a very deep release that happens every month within the system. And there's an emotional release that happens with that as someone who menstruates expands and contracts. So there becomes a lot of emotion associated with it too. And because this comes to an end, there has to be a trans movement into the capacity to be able to do this in a very different way. So it, it means for me that there is a lot of really exciting learning and a lot of opportunity that can happen by recognizing how we've done something in the past and how we can move forwards into the future to actually almost prevent the inevitable from happening and start to change the way that we start to do things. So for me, menopause is a huge opportunity. It's a massive opportunity, which means that people are questioning roles, they're questioning relationships, they are looking at what keeps them stable, they are looking at what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, they're looking at using different methods of communication because something deep within the system is stopping. I don't know if this sort of makes any sense. It makes a lot of sense and I can see a lot of nodding all around the room as well. Um, well, the first observation I've made is the striking similarity to pregnancy, how you know, you saying how, how it's a situation where challenges a lot of beliefs and routines and everything. And I remember while, while I was practicing obstetric in London, especially in a city in like London, where there are a lot of rules and routine that you have to put in place because otherwise you can't really manage to do anything. Um, at least that's what I personally felt like. And, and it's always a time that I have to tell my patients like, you know, your body's changing in every single way that is possible. Uh, so you may not be able to go to your yoga class at six o'clock anymore and then get breakfast and then go to work and then have like a 12 hour work day and then still go home and cook dinner and, you know, manage the perfect household. Like something has to change and shift. And I think, I think that is difficult. I, I completely get that because I'm also a creature of habits. And I think if something happens along my life where I have to uh, have to suddenly shift everything and change all my routines, I, I will feel very, very difficult about that. Um, like night shift, I always find them very, very difficult because my routine get completely thrown out the window. Um, but I guess in some way, I, I really appreciate your viewpoint where menopause or these kind of challenge or transitional moments it's an opportunity for revisiting or reflecting or learning or you know changing routine I think I think that's really good maybe I, I can start thinking about that um because all of it uh, also in my current workplace in mental health we do see women around the same age of uh, menopause or uh, time or postmenopause or it's time where there's a lot more often um, more depression or more uh, mental health issues as well and I think that's a lot of things that are related to what Colin had said obviously the emotion uh, from all the hormonal changes is one uh, empty nest syndrome like your children growing up and uh, leaving home going off to university is another uh, especially again in London if you're working maybe going towards a time where your job role is changing as well you're revisiting your working hours either increasing or decreasing depending on the situation and also relationship as well um, so yeah it is a period that represents a lot a lot of changes and it can be a very good opportunity, but obviously also sometimes can be opportunity for a lot of challenges and, and you know, emotional downturn as well. 
And I think it's, I'll take sleep as an example, because I think earlier on I said uh, Western medicine can be a little bit crude and though it can still be true, I think it's slightly unfair as well. I think, I think we do have the perspective um, as well to see one problem, but then really think about what is the cause of the problem and how we can help. I remember when I used to teach a medical student and say, okay, uh, that was when I was still in Obstinkani. Um, so this um, postmenopausal pa female patient come to see us uh, presenting um, uh, sleep disturbance or insomnia because of the menopausal symptoms, what will you do? And they would say, oh, sleeping tablets. It's like, okay, of course, uh, after sleeping hygiene, if that doesn't work, then sleeping tablets. Like, well, although that may be good and well, but I think maybe we need to think more about why there's a sleeping disturbance. Um, I, as, as a psychiatrist now, I think sleep is very, very important because it really allows our brain to rest and kind of um, recuperate uh, and also help our body to cope with all the changes that happens naturally, but especially in menopause as well. So things like uh, pelvic floor issues can be one. So if the woman's getting up like three, four times a night, just going to toilet because there's a pelvic floor weakness, um, obviously that can be one issues. It can be emotion, again, um, depression, insomnia or poor sleep disturbance can be one of the cause, uh, one of the minor symptoms as well. So again, that can be something that's related. Hot flush is obviously a big one. Um, you know, you'll be sweating two, three pairs of pajamas every night. It's really rather impossible to have a good night's sleep, especially on a day like this. Um, and also sometimes just an ache and pains, you know, um, muscle density, bone density, we mentioned earlier on. Uh, sometimes these are the things that we can do to help without actually giving too much medication as well. There are things that we can reconsider, maybe like a cold shower, maybe pelvic floor exercises, don't drink too much before you go to bed. Um, if emotion is a problem, then obviously sometimes antidepressant can help, but sometimes maybe just talking to friends, counseling, uh, diet, lifestyle, exercise, these are all things that can help as well. Interestingly, antidepressant actually also can be used in hot flushes as well, but into a much lower dose. So, Sometimes it's, it's recommended if you know a certain patient or certain woman doesn't want to take HRT, you may be recommended to have a low dose antidepressant. And uh, there are some studies that actually shows its work. There are a lot of like pseudo brand or like health food that helps. They are helpful, but just to be aware, a lot of them actually contain natural estrogen because you know we gave our estrogen maybe in tablets, in patch, in cream form, but they are extracted from the natural plants and well as well. So sometimes things like uh, black cohosh, I can never really say that properly, um, and isofovium, and these other things actually contain a little bit of uh, natural estrogen as well. And depending on the formula that you take, sometimes you actually can already be taking HRT without really been told that you're taking HRT, so you do have to read between the fine line. And I think I think it's important to point out, um, just in case you're wondering, I'm not going to give out any advice which brand of HRT, how to take it. This is really going to be a conversation for the person and their physician or their obstetrician, um, gynecologist to talk about because, you know, it should be tailored. But one thing that really uh, to remember, if the person still have a womb, that, meaning the actual uterus itself, uh, even if part of it or for whatever reason is not that, if you have any part of the womb remaining, uh, it is highly recommended that, that you take progesterone at the same time. Reason being, as I said earlier on already, oestrogen is a stimulating hormone, so it actually makes the lining of the womb, so endometrium, in case you want to know the name, uh, really, really grow. Progesterone is kind of like the counterbalance 
hormone in the natural reproductive cycle and it makes the lining shred, which is where menstruation comes from. Now, this is all good and well if you're in sync in your cycle because, you know, everything that grows got shredded so you can restart. However, if you don't put the progesterone in and you keep having artificial oestrogen, these growth can become excessive and sometimes can become can, uh, um, cancerous, which is why um, it is very, very, very important that if you still have a womb or whoever it is that had a womb going through menopause and want to take HRT, uh, it is always recommended to take progesterone. Um, always reason to point out one, sometimes people don't want to take too many hormones, which is completely understandable. Sometimes people um, are sensitive to progesterone, especially if you have um, a lot of PMS uh, during your reproductive cycles. Um, but there are, again, different forms of progesterone that can be taken, or there are certain um, preparation of oestrogen that has less of effect. So uh, like really topical cream for vaginal dryness, if in a low dose, sometimes it doesn't have to be counteracted because it's not so systematic. Um, so just to be aware, um, I think because it's quite, quite important thing to point out. Um, Colin, I'm gonna throw it back to you for a little bit. But first of all, I think Bavina is asking if there's any book that you recommend uh, around constitution and menopause. And I'm gonna throw in one of mine because I like drinking tea. Is there any like food preparation or tea you recommend for menopause <laughs> for the change? I was gonna change the subject on both of you and bring up some small talk actually. Um, how are you coping with the warm weather? Because we're in the UK, warm tea. Warm Sorry? I'm having warm tea. You're having warm tea. Okay. Yeah, because I felt like I, I, I go into belief of if I have a bit of warm drink, I help me to perspirate and actually help me to cool off. Okay. So in a way, what's happening is that it, it, uh, there's a huge amount of heat that goes on within the system. So what that does is when there's a huge amount of heat, metabolic change that happens within the system, you find that we have to break the patterns of what we normally do. So what that means is, is you know, the patterns of work, the patterns of, let's say, training, the patterns of doing lots of different things that we come to do. So if you imagine you've got a huge amount of heat in the system, but let's say you're trying to go out now, you're getting up and, you know, I'm not gonna go out to about eight o'clock tonight because you know, it is so hot where I am, it's unbelievable. But if I was continuing like it was the normal temperature and pushing right the way through, you can see how I'd be pushing my system. It means that what has to happen is that we're used to a consistency of doing something, but we need to look at the patterning of how we're doing things in order to move through this and come out the other side. And so, for me, one of the number one things is to break the patterns of what we're doing and make it acceptable to break those patterns. So to say, actually, it's really okay to rest. It's actually really okay to walk earlier in the morning. Actually, it's really, really okay to stay at home. Okay, and that becomes really important for me. It becomes the crucial break in us moving from one place to another place. Um, and this for me is about adjusting lifestyle. And when we talk about adjusting lifestyle to minimize stress and anxiety, this is what I'm referring to. And you read this again and again with books and places, people will turn around and go, you know, adjust your lifestyle to minimize stress and anxiety, do this, this, and my question is how? And it's often looking at the rules that we put in place. Okay, because actually, if you think about it, 
when you're really hot, what do you do? You have to hydrate, okay? You actually don't have, you don't feel hungry until the sun goes down. So actually what happens is that your main meal should be very early in the morning rather than you eat very, very late at night. You know, you need to be able to have a bit of a siesta in the afternoon so that you can go through the night and wake up and, and, and create, you know, with the imbalances that are happening due to the heat. So actually we've got the skills to challenge this, but we push against this based on our belief about what we think we ought to be doing. Okay, and, and we push against it and go, I need to sleep from this time to this time. Uh, guess what? It's not going to happen. Okay, so we need to put in place a different strategy. And when we put that strategy in place, we actually start to navigate this whole area. And that's, for me, crucially, crucially important. So it means hydrate, look at the pattern, look at the rules, look at the the difference between and, and looking at us the idea that we have to get something done or we have to do something versus actually how I can get something done so there becomes a whole series of things for me with regard to lifestyle around this and not to be frightened to change our environment as well and for me the capacity not to be frightened because of change is hugely important because actually we need to be able to change the points of stability that we've had that have been a reference and worked for us so that we can then move forwards. Otherwise we're trying to hold on to the past and hold on to things in a particular way and it's not gonna work out. So for me to adjust lifestyle is addressing all these different things. It's starting to look at all of this. And also it's looking at food because the pattern that we have with food is crucial because all the metabolism, everything is changing. Everything is ch completely utterly changing. So quite often, and there's a, it, an interesting thing within both yoga and Ayurveda that actually what you ate earlier in your life, you don't eat later on in your life because the system has too much of that. So it means that there's a, a complete look at the way that you look at food in a in a completely different way and that becomes very important and the next thing from me is for for me for, for me is sleep and like i said it is the change the rules up have a small siesta you know know that if you're going to wake up in the night it, it's it's fine okay so it's absolutely okay and if we kind of go hey it's okay and what's going on is that you wake up and your mind is kind of doing a million miles an hour and you go great my mind's going a million miles an hour and it sounds I'm sorry to say this but it, it, it does actually work don't get involved in your mind going a million miles an hour just look at it and go great you're doing what you need to do this is what you do which is processing because that's what the mind does when you sleep it processes put things in order I, I say it's a bit like shelf stacking you know if you go into a supermarket at night it's kind of everyone stacking shelves and you don't get involved with the people that are stacking the shelves okay you just back off let them do their own thing and it all happens the more you get involved in it the more trouble it causes because you go that's not lined up this isn't going in the right way what's happening over here and you know what i'll never get back to sleep again i need eight hours sleep whereas the more you look at it and you go you're just doing what you need to do that's completely okay 
it really works. It means that we need to put in place practices in the evening, practices in the morning, because we're dealing with numbers of different symptoms. So for hot symptoms, we need to use very, very, very mild, what's called an angina, which is eliminating arsenic. Um, we need to use arsenics, that's positions, with either sheetali or kari on the movements. So this needs to be done. And then it also needs to be a focus on extension of exhalation. There needs to be very, very small retentions, no big retentions at all, which increase and work with the metabolic system. Don't go with any big retentions at all. And everything done very gently and dynamically. So this sort of thing really works with heat. It, it means that we avoid hot baths. I'm sorry, Stanford, hot food, sunshine, you know, hot environments, um, eat meals slowly in comfortable surroundings. These type of things become important when you're looking with, at things with heat. Then when you've got disturbed energy patterns and sleep, again, gentle lying positions really help. So anything lying on the ground, gentle, static, um, supine positions, extension of exhalation to breathing capacity. So stepping the exhalation up in small steps really, really helps. Um, very, very small retentions after the exhale. Again, Shitali, Sikari, these sort of breathings really, really, really help. Breathing techniques really help. Um, and also meditative practices which are based on stability, cooling, calming, no movement, because we need to find stability whilst everything's moving. So it's about sitting and finding stability within chaos. So it, it, it's those sort of processes that becomes very important as part of working with this. Avoiding stimulants such as tea, coffee, spicy food, um, avoiding rich, heavy foods, having several light meals rather than sort of major meals becomes quite important. Um, and I, I think this would, for me, would be the sort of general direction that I would sort of, if I was going to generalize, and I'm looking at variables of constitution and symptom, but also with regard to direction into those to help the person navigate and move forwards, I think is important. Um, but for me, the capacity not to be frightened and to change something, to look at finding new points of stability, new references that will work for us, I think is the kind of crucial thing um, as part of, of, of working with this changing lifestyle. Well, now I have to wait for my mentee to cool down and focus on my exhale then. Um, <laughs> um, well, Lauren was saying that she lives in Kansas City and it's always hot in the summer. So I guess you, you have more opportunity than us here in UK to practice all this practice that Colin was just saying. 
I'm just going to answer one question as well. Heather was asking about a uh, number of cases of women who've been told that they are menopausal and it turns out they have cervical cancer. Are the symptoms quite similar? Uh, what are the things to look out for? So I think, so cervical cancer nowadays, obviously the incident has dramatically or dramatically or drastically reduced because of the screening program. But it used to be, it's more prevalent in um, younger age, so like literally teenagers up to 20s, uh, and also much later on, so somewhere between 50s and 70s. So that seems to be the peaks uh, where um, cervical cancer happens. I think what can be confusing in this time is, is not actually the symptoms of menopause, but what sometimes can be um, presented because of menopause. So in menopause, what we are worried about post-menopausal bleeding. So we thought the menstruation has stopped and then bleeding restart. Most of the time it's because of dry skin and the vaginal skin being a little bit more fragile. So um, by sometimes exercising, like cycling, uh, sometimes actually in sexual activity as well, the skin just become uh, more easy to break and it can bleed a little bit. So that can be uh, one of the reasons and most of the time it's the reason. But obviously we worry that it's something worse like cancer and what I said earlier on, endometrial cancer. Um, kind of the main symptom is postmenopausal bleeding, which is why we always recommend um, if you have bleeding if, uh, and you're already postmenopausal, it's a red flag sy symptoms and GP typically refer to a gynecologist and you should get seen within two weeks time. That's two weeks window. Um, now, cervical cancer can also present with bleeding because once the cervix become cancerous and sometimes get a little bit more inflamed on the crotteg and you know, it's really, really, deteriorated, it can also present with bleeding as well. So that can be why it can be confusing. Um, not necessarily menopause is going to increase uh, cervical cancer, but I think it's just naturally it happens more often around that time of woman's life as well. So I think that's usually why, which is why it's important to keep going to your cervical smear screen up until they've been told you no longer need to be recalled. So very, very important. Uh, Yanni is saying, if a person is experiencing symptoms that have HRD, should they make all the lifestyle changes or is it no longer relevant? Are they still in the transitional phase or have they effectively reset themselves? Uh, as I said earlier on, personally, I think HRD delays uh, all this upcoming symptoms of menopause, but I think maybe Colin will be better at stepping in to answer this question because I think you probably have seen more people who are on HRT or thinking about stopping or starting HRT? Personally, I think that um, I go along with anyone's decision with regard to HRT. Um, I don't think it's a my position to take any um, stance or direction to say yes you should do this no you shouldn't do that um, but it's also to encourage people to find the right doctors to speak to to actually help them with regard to helping the decision process um, I always refer back to the fact that I have no experience of this whatsoever as in you know I, my job is to help people and that help could be to direct them to talk to someone that is an expert in the field with regard to this, and but several experts so that they get a, a decision because 
some HRT works for people very well, others doesn't, but some forms of HRT, if it's derived from one source helps and from other sources doesn't help. So it's to make sure that what's happening is that I give the best support and don't become the point of guidance, but actually point people in the direction where they can access this information without any judgment and it can actually help their lives. So that, that for me is, my stance with regard to HRT. I was speaking earlier about this to someone and she was quite relieved actually because it's, she said it's interesting because it's not about spinning more plates because almost in a way it's, it's, it's we can feel in this situation like we're taking more things on. And it's almost quite overwhelming if we look at it in that way, like we're actually spinning more and more plates. Oh my goodness, I've got to do this, this, and this now. And actually it's about adjusting. And her words were that it, it was, it's trusting myself to do that um, because if I thought I was the catalyst, I was then spinning more plates, but actually it's my ability to adapt within it that becomes the most important thing and it's this adaption um, because often quite often when this is occurring we feel so duty bound to everything and it's like it's getting in the way because there's so many other things that the person has to do that it becomes quite overwhelming so for me, as part of all of this, it's, it's to provide the support, to provide the help, to know where my limitations are, and also to understand what you know, I know and what I don't know, to provide practices and help and guidance where I can, but also to point in the right direction, to support someone, to speak to experts in their field, that actually give them the capacity to make the decisions themselves from a point of stability. I completely agree. I think just like what we've spoken about um, in the surgery, the knee surgery webinar as well, I think rather you take about treatment or not, it's completely personal choice. And often there's almost like no right or wrong answer. And some of the time it's about, um, try try and error like if it's it's available and it's something that you want to consider you can always try and then if it really doesn't work with you it can definitely um, stop it as well I think I may have not been clear to Colin I think the question was actually if someone's on HRT would you still recommend all the lifestyle changes uh, or is it no longer relevant um, so I think personally I was still encouraged making the lifestyle um changes just because it's it kind of delaying the process but not necessarily eliminating it altogether but Colin do you want to chip in or yeah for me it's 100 percent exactly yeah and Carol I think this may be the last question uh, because uh, conscious of the time from personal experience when I come off HRT I didn't have symptoms because I believe I had changed my lifestyle and therefore the symptoms didn't reappear and HRT gave me time to make the change thank you I think that helped us to sum up very nicely. Um, so I think 
I'll just end my bit today um, in my reflection on why we do menopause. I think Colin and I both had a little bit of hang up about doing this topic, actually, because, you know, two blokes talking about menopause in front of a room of women. Um, it, it, it feels more natural and easy for me because of my training and my experience. And obviously I have to have taken that position before. But I also come from the perspective where, I mean, I've done a lot of topic in this webinar now that I haven't have no personal experience whatsoever. I never had a knee surgery. I never had gender dysphoria. Um, I may have anger and back pain, but I never had chronic fatigue either. Um, it doesn't necessarily stop me from researching about these topics and, and then share what I found. And especially if this is a topic that I have had some medical experience with, I felt like sharing is good. And I think, in some way, having two blokes talk about menopause is actually almost more powerful in some way because, you know, it's not an issue or not 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 a change that only affects the female. Um, I think it also affects you know half the world and it naturally will affect the male too. Uh, you know, because we live together, because we work together, um, and I think it's good to just raise awareness. Um, and also the other thing I think is important is because unlike a lot of the other topics that we talked about, like anger and back pain, where there's more preventable, menopause, as Colin keeps saying, is more opportunity. It's something that will happen. So actually talking about it, it hopefully helps because it's always, I think, it's most important in medical treatment is actually information, just talking and, you know, making informed decision. And yeah, hopefully we've done a little bit of that today. Colin? Thank you, Stanford. I think you've summed up very well. So for me, um, there's two things. One is that it's, it's view as a transitional phase and actually the navigation of many transitional phases, we have the ability to do. And so it really is a, an opportunity to access the capacity of something we already have and not to be frightened and to look at it as a way of changing a number of the different rules and patterns that we've got to come out the other side into a much more stable and place with, again, success and with opportunity for our future. I just want to thank everyone for coming today. Um, I actually found this really enjoyable today. Um, normally I don't. That's a joke. Oh, yay. Um, um, so, so, uh, so I just want to say thank you so much, everyone, for coming. Um, we are, I think, Stanford, we're doing, we're doing a revisit on anger at the Global Yoga Therapy Conference, which I'm really excited about. Um, so Stanford and I will be presenting on, on, on anger. Of August. Um, yeah, so we're going to be doing a very different perspective on anger. So I'm really kind of excited to do that. And the next time we meet, um, we are doing a nervous breakdown. Yeah, I'm a bit nervous about that. But yes, 10th of August, we're going to do a nervous breakdown. And the week after, we're going to revisit anger. I like the sound of that. Um, so I just want to say thank you so much to all of you for coming. Um, and I, yeah, really, really kind of like enjoyed tonight. So I hope you got something from it. And I'll see you next time. Thank you so, so much. See you next time. Bye. Thank you, everyone.